0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation. Let's kick off part two, Soraya. We we know that you were uh, a very enthusiastic participant in the uh, in the project. You were uh, you attended many of the events, but you also um, spoke at our diversity and inclusion um, conversation, which which was absolute. That, that, for me, that was one of the the light bulb moments. Um, we had a we had a conversation uh, about the difference between diversity and inclusion and how. The, the 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 proposition was that you couldn't really have a diverse organisation unless you had an inclusive um, organisation. I thought that was that was absolutely fascinating. Is that is that theme around diversity and inclusion something that's 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 real for you, or is it a is it an academic theme? And if it is real, how are you dealing with that in your own your own day job?
1: Well, I think before it was academic, and then like you, it was a light bulb moment for me because I'm just like, well, you know. DNI, it's protected characteristics, you know, the usual, you know, thinking around that. And then actually, I sat in there in that room and thought, I don't know a thing. And, you know, it's the fact that diversity and inclusion aren't mutually exclusive, but, you know, it's the language we use has meaning, which you kind of know, but you don't necessarily connect it to the DNI um, conversation. And it was about thinking about it in such a different way and. Um, and that, that for me was, yeah, an absolute light bulb moment. And actually how I rep- um, approach um, talent acquisition now um, is actually more meaningful um, instead of some of that, you know, when you read a CV and you, you automatically have certain maybe biases, which you hope you don't have as an HR professional, but you just can't help it. And to go in now and actually challenge managers around, actually, why are we writing about certain years of education or looking for that university, surely we're looking for somebody who aligns to our purpose or there's a set of behaviours and a mindset. So actually that needs to influence the questions we ask in an interview. Um, And that's actually made the managers that I'm working with I'm going to border on saying enjoy the recruitment process um, because it's not it's not something they love. Um, it, it's actually seen sometimes, you know, talent acquisition isn't seen as a joyful thing to do for managers. Whereas actually if we're appro- approaching it differently and coaching them through that going, actually they want to pick up on your enthusiasm and be aligned to your purpose. So how are you actually going to do that um, in that recruitment process? So actually that d conversation has filtered into how I approach well-being in the workplace um, as well because well-being sits really nicely um, under a D&I strategy you know around people being their whole selves you know being their authentic self at work has the impacts it has on you know their mental well-being um, and if we're being truly um, diverse and inclusive actually it solves a lot of those well-being issues um, in the workplace so it's it's given some nice themes into the organisation, some nice conversations um, around some really practical everyday things that you actually have to do as an HR person.
0: Yeah, and absolutely practical. And, and every day is, is, is where we wanted to get to with, yeah. with some of those experiences. In our own organisation, I guess the, the second light bulb moment was was blindingly obvious, but just recognising that inclusivity was about how the individual felt, not about what the organisation did which sounds really obvious when you, when you step back and say that now, but actually having a forum in which diversity and inclusion were discussed in a way that was about how employees felt rather than how the organisation was performing uh, was a really, really interesting perspective. And in fact, one of my, one of my proudest moments, we did a, a work, an inclusivity series of workshops within, within our own business um, on the back of the, some of the learnings from the project. And everybody had to write down a time when they felt excluded. And uh, there were some fascinating topics up there on the, up on the board, some of them uncomfortable. Uh, but we then had to say how we felt about that. And, w- and one of my guys uh, said that when he, when he felt most excluded, he felt most proud. And I thought that was a really interesting re- reaction to you know, un- understanding difference and, and how it makes different people feel. So it was proud in a, in, a, in a positive and a negative way.
2: I do think as well, though, that um, the D&I conversation has shifted yeah. you know, in, the, in recent years. So, you know, just thinking as, a, as an employment practitioner, um, organizations used to come to you all the time and say, um, I need to do some D&I training. We need to get our managers, you know, um, fully skilled to deal with D&I issues. And what they meant was I need a shield against a discrimination claim, yeah. which is a very narrow scope within, within which to see it. And I think one of the most obvious um, themes from one of the zebra conversations um, was around social mobility, yeah. which is not something that is you know protected by law. You can't be discriminated against for your background, but actually businesses were missing a real trick by not seeing that within the prism of DNI and saying, "Well, okay, we need we need some we need a bunch of skills here. We've got a lot of equally qualified candidates who could potentially." you know, do the job equally well. Um, so they're all at the same position now, but I can guarantee they didn't all start in the same place. And is there a quality for someone who's maybe had to, you know, come from a background where they, you know, they don't naturally progress into certain types of industry or sector or profession um, that makes them more attractive as as an employee within our organisation to diversify our organisation in that way?
3: I, I also think I agree with all of that. And I think the other thing that you can see with businesses is that, the the age profile of CEOs changing. Also, you know it's different if you're a founder of an entrepreneurial company. But I think that you know I, I know plenty of them um, because I'm in clearly in midlife. Those that are in midlife is that enlightened leaders recognise that not only does diversity and difference drive a more interesting and innovative conversation in your organisation, but they're, and I think this was a phrase that Google used, they are becoming aware of the danger of listening all the time to hippos, the highest paid person's opinion. That actually, in terms of a voice that might shift your organisational thinking or policy, it's more likely to be a new entrant, someone who's got different experience to possibly what the leadership team is. And so that whole thing about democratising the conversation internally, and conversation has to mean that you embrace D&I has also been I think something that people just know actually that works you know I don't need to read a Harvard Business School report telling me that diversity drives innovation I can now start to see it in my business Mm -hmm. and that if I'm genuinely being inclusive about that conversation we'll get a better outcome so I think that's really shifted too I think you're right I think um, not only are people's perspective shifting but their lived experience around that being true and they're they're experimenting with it and seeing it is always is the most powerful driver of change if people try something and they see it, it produces a different outcome you start to get change
1: and I think as well from a really practical point of view we keep talking about this global war on talent but actually we keep fishing in the same pools so of course you're going to create this bubble and you know this competition where you're not going to find the talent that you need whereas actually if you look further afield in those less obvious places in terms of you know social mobility you are you can nurture that talent and you can actually drive the purpose more because you're you're developing your talent pipeline much earlier on, um, and you're you're creating a sustainable organisation because you're going to create that longevity with your employees because they've had those opportunities that they might not otherwise have um, if they're coming in seem to be you know that cookie cutter employee from a particular background, a particular level of education, particular technical expertise. Whereas actually, if you're going actually these socially different um educational um you know schools universities whatever building that talent pipeline you're actually going to go actually what what skills work for our business um you get a long a better um, return on that investment for your people um because you're not going to have that churn because of that comp, because everybody else is doing the same thing. Um, and that, that's been really important, actually, for me to educate um, managers and work with leaders again, to start thinking about that. Actually, we don't have a war on talent. We just need to think about talent differently.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think one of the, the difficult practical challenges that we see, and I, and I, I hear this through conversations with, with HR professionals in the UK and the US, is at the recruitment stage, how, how do we practically manage a process where we're trying to identify what people are? rather than judge them against what they're not. And it's easy to say, but when you're you know when you're faced with hundreds of, of resumes and CVs, how do you actually do that? But I really do think that the ability to unlock the potential in people and you know, directly address issues like social mobility and difference really lies in some of those basic practical activities at the recruitment and, and probably at the performance development and review stage, um, which which in itself requires managers to be um, much more enlightened than they, aren't, than they are um, in many organisations at the moment. Mm. Tom, you, you initially contributed to the uh, government's review on the future world of work, mm. which was, I, I'm guessing, relatively narrow compared to the issues that we're talking about here. Is that, is that right? And and if so, what, how, how do you think we can get government to look at the broader range of issues that we've been talking about through the Zebra Project?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that is absolutely... Right, Matt. And, you know, as, as an organization, Taylor Vinters first got involved with this through a fairly narrow prism. which, you know, we, we work with innovative organizations and we were seeing innovators in the market doing very different things, but coming across real legal challenges, the gig economy, um, organizations like, you know, Deliveroo and Uber. Yeah, finding real challenges in the regulation of, you know, employment status and things like that. So it started in a fairly na- fairly narrow way, but then when we started talking to our own clients and networks about that specific issue and what it meant for them, I think what we realised quickly was that it was just a very very small part of a much bigger question around how people perceived you know, what their organisation might look like in five years. And, and and lots of people were saying to me, I think there's going to be more change in the next five years than there's been in the previous 20. And you think back to, you know, the year 2000, actually, how different was stuff then? And we're seeing a greater pace of change in the next year and a quarter of the time up to, let's say, 2025. So um, I do think that... Um, uh, government that um, they're try- they were trying to address the immediate issue of you know the law has not caught up with the way business is done and I think that was that was an underlying um, driver for Matthew Taylor's report on good work which obviously then fed into the launch of the zebra project um, but those issues haven't gone away so you know successive governments since Matthew Taylor's report have dodged you know the difficult question of How do you categorise someone who works in the gig economy? Um, So my concern is that actually when we're talking about broad issues of ethics and culture, um, okay, they may not be ripe for regulation as such, but, you know, there should be government policy. You know, parliamentary committees should be talking about this stuff because it's relevant to to business and therefore relevant to, to people's future careers.
0: So I'm so I'm looking down a list at the moment of mm-hmm. the of the topics that we covered during the Zebra Project and just thinking about the breadth that you're talking about there. So we looked at we looked at purpose um, and organizational identity. We looked at culture. Uh, we looked at at people side of things. Some we've talked a lot about that this morning. We looked at ethics, um, technology, uh, organizational structures, and we also looked at the environment. For the, for the Zebra Project to, to continue to deliver the value uh, that it has to, to so many people, what are the topics that we think are going to be emerging over the next year? And how, how can we use the podcast series to, to drill into some new and interesting material that's relevant to, to business leaders?
1: I think for me, it's about having those difficult conversations as leaders, um, things that you just wouldn't necessarily think a leader should worry about, You know, things like diversity and inclusion, things like... You know um the ethics side of things I think I think that needs to be driven a lot more um, they they make people uncomfortable, but we should be having uncomfortable conversations.
3: I think that I, I I agree with that wholeheartedly I think that um I mean you mentioned your favorite podcast about understanding and learning from failure. I think that one of the things that I've always been I'm always encouraged when I see um, business leaders or anyone who's trying to do something interesting in life talk about what didn't work and how much they failed and how much it was difficult to get, succeed. So I think the, the authenticity of having conversations with people in your ongoing Zebra Conversations and in the podcast series that people are, admit to their, you know, their mistakes and the things that they learn, because often we learn more from those and that's a well established thing, so I think that's important. And I think going back to something Don was just saying around you know, that we're living in a world now that's moving so fast that regulators are struggling to cope. Businesses are struggling to cope to adapt quickly enough. So, you know, one of the themes of Zebra was technology is moving faster than our ability to change our operating models and how we engage our people. And we need to speed up the rate of innovation and our thinking there. So I suppose anything you can do that just keeps feeding really brilliant and inspirational ways in which people are solving problems that... When you start, you can think, I don't know how to solve that. But someone's always probably working on the problem you're working on and might, and might well be coming up with a better idea than yours. So I think the authenticity of the conversation, getting people to admit what works as well as what doesn't, and then just keep trying to find those examples of inspiration and innovation that give a clue to all of us about what to do next.
0: And, and as you've become active in the Zebra Project, who were the, who were the sorts of people that you were bumping into? Who were the, what was the breadth of inspiration that you were drawing on?
2: well wow, it was a, it was a really wide range there were sort of you know sort of deep thinkers on quite technical issues so we had some you know you know quite you know engineering type you know tech bots who fantastic understanding of ai and things like that right through to sort of business leaders who came along actually just to step out of their day job this was their opportunity to come outside and and breathe and have some kind of mind expanding subject matter i think one of them described it to me as on on one of those videos which is which i think is is super important because um for me zebra has to give um Business leaders, the tools actually to do something different. You know, the number of times you have conversations where um, this stuff is on people's minds, but it never makes it onto the board agenda, and it needs to be it needs to be driven up that board agenda and actually a a, a recurring topic, so you can you can measure the progress you're making against some of this stuff.
0: Well, you've thrown the gauntlet down there with mind expanding content and uh, and practical steps. So uh, thanks for that. We'll do we'll do our very best on the uh, uh, to deliver that for everyone involved in the zebra in the zebra project. It's. Uh, just again, picking up on what you said, Dom, about the, the the pace of change and the complexity of some of the issues around the future world of work agenda, is that is that seen as a positive challenge or is it terrifying business leaders in your experience? Um, I don't. I mean, I, I I think
2: it has to be seen as a positive challenge, um, and I think um, the the I think the the reason it it sometimes looks slightly scary to to business is they don't know where to start because. Um, they, you know, they may be trying to introduce tech into their business, take an example like that, but they've never really done it before and not done it on the scale which they think they're going to need to in order to get ahead of or keep pace with their competitors. So there's some really practical stuff that came out of some of the Zebra chats, particularly around, you know, if, you, if you're going to introduce, say, an automated decision-making process, let's use that as an example, um, start small. Start something you know, relatively process-driven and formulaic and just test it out. You don't need to go rolling out massive projects across your organization and, and, and sort of learn through trial and error. And it's all about, as, as you were saying, Matt, sort of in, in embracing the positives that come out of failure. You can do it in a relatively controlled environment before you go, right, this works, or it might work, we need to tweak it. And I think
3: that's the, that's the way to take those kind of first baby steps in terms of some of this stuff. I mean, just I think that I did. I mean, because you to go back to your earlier question about what were the types of people that we met and what struck me. I mean, I think that um, I enjoyed the fact that it was often all ages, so we had plenty of millennials in the room, and I think that's important, you know, because I think they view the world differently. um, That you can do as you get older, and the other thing I think is that, as I would have expected, actually, but it was nice to have it affirmed when you when you took part in Zebra events. The, 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 the people that make change happen, which is what I'm interested in, whether you, however you define that, and that could be anyone in an organisation or in a charity or in their voluntary work, always have energy and curiosity. That's what I look for. That's what I look for when I hire people, you're looking for energy and curiosity. And, and then I think the thing that was distinctive about it, and mo- pretty much everyone who was coming had that, I think then to build on what Dom said, you could feel that exhalation of business leaders with serious and difficult jobs being able to focus on the future in a bit of a calmer way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other thing about leadership. I think if you're particularly the bigger the organization you run, that sense of responsibility you have to understand what's coming over the hill. You know, and that actually, you know, that's where the 4 a.m. moments come from. What's going to blindside me? What have I missed? And I think that, you know, that rich menu of topics and content and ideas we, we kind of encouraged everyone to talk about, I think was a reassuring sort of and helpful blanket around actually this is what's coming over the hill and this is the stuff you've got to be thinking about and here's what's next. So, you know, I think that, th- that so the constituency of the people that were coming combined with that space to think produced really powerful conversation. Give you an ex- excellent horizon scan. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the things absolutely. Coming up. I, like, I like that thing
1: yeah and I think for me it was people who don't see life through the same lens as I do um, has been really invaluable it's about being able to see different perspectives of the same issues that people are facing um was a real learning opportunity for me I felt I needed to learn and educate myself in a different way and the zebra community has provided that for me because it's about getting it seeing a different mindset and approaching the same problems but just in a different way that I hadn't thought of um, has been really key
0: so I hate to come back to the idea of failure but I'm really interested in your views on uh, what people are finding hardest in addressing this agenda and also how can how can we help them with that in the, in the podcast series
3: one specific thing i think and mean, we touched on it in the dni agenda i think i think it's to have the energy as an organisation to move beyond compliance and and do and actually really kind of reach for a bigger ambition and then test and fail and you're going to make mistakes, but you get there. So, you know, so for example, in terms of my own context, I run a business that collects data. It collects personal data because it measures intrinsic outcomes. And actually one of the things I took out of Zebra was that actually ethical and transparency and good governance has to be a live value in the business. So I was dealing with that. I'd privatized that as the business owner and working with a lawyer around our GDPR compliance and very quickly realized that's not what's going to protect the business. You know, so that thing about sustainability and and really creating businesses that thrive is you've got to stretch beyond compliance you've got to stretch beyond doing something because it's on a tick list of a risk register and really thinking about how to turn those challenges into opportunities and I know that sounds a bit rah-rah but it absolutely is the job of leadership to every time when so GDPR actually is a huge driver for value in your business if you see it as something around one how do I make data live how do I make insight live how do I give more back to the people that we're creating data for become aspirational goals when it's very easy to sit within a, a much more narrow you know kind of framework of what you're judging your success by so you know I think that's something that I think is important to realize
1: yeah and I think in terms of failure is what does failure mean to you um, I think you can define it however you want you know is is it really failure or did you just need to do the same thing a bit differently next time I I'm not a fan of the word failure, actually. Um, so maybe I need to start listening to your favorite podcast. But I think it's about how you how you address failure. And you know, to your point, um, it's around we know whatever environment, whatever workspace we're in, it is driven by compliance. But that is where the innovation comes in, because you know, it's not restrictive. It's where you can be really creative, but being mindful of of those comply, you know, those compliance issues. But that shouldn't stop you from achieving what you want to achieve and you might not get it right the first time but that's not necessarily a failure I think.
0: But if nothing else you'll provide a context for those compliance issues yep. and and near and back to a sort of Simon Sinek moment where we're talking not about the what our organisations are doing but leadership's role being providing the, the why around that so people feel engaged around the issues that are being addressed.
2: Yeah I agree the, I think the only thing I'd add to what um, John and, and Soraya have said is that that kind of um, freedom to fail, and again, I I have issues with the word failure as well, sorry, that that freedom to fail needs to pervade down the organization as well. So it's, um, you know, very well sort of Senior leadership having you know grand ideas and sort of testing them out, they might not not work. And and I you know I'm a strong believer. I see failure is just one of those stepping stones to success. Ultimately, isn't it? Because you just try something different. But giving your um, giving your wider workforce the ability to do the same without fear of of you know reproach or recrimination, I think that in itself is probably uh, you know one of the main drivers of innovation in any organisation. John was saying he's interested in organisations that want to embrace change and people want to embrace change, that's the way you do it, you know, not by sitting in a corner
3: and going, well, I've got an idea, but I'm going to keep it to myself. I think, I think it's interesting to hear that, those comments on failure because that, that's an old sore actually in businesses, which is, you know, what is it? So, you, you know, I know I've worked with the CEO, talked about we need an enlightened attitude to risk. You know, so, it, it, so I agree. It's kind of, you know, we can talk about failure probably has more consequences. It's a more powerful word for individuals possibly. Mm. And with organizations, I think one of the things that Zeb has made really clear that if you're getting that soft infrastructure right, if you're getting those fundamentals right, you're much more likely to have an enlightened attitude towards risk. And then trial and in piloting and experimenting, you know, beyond a a compliance led agenda or envelope. So I think those things go together. But I think you're right, the language that leaders use around giving permission um, for their teams, their staff you know, their customers to experiment with them and and, and do things, I think is really important. And, and you know, that, so probably having conversations about risk and failure is an important thing to test out what people think they mean, because um, the language drives change. If you change the language in an organisation, you're often changing the conversation than what people do.
1: We well, you change the belief and experience, don't you? Yeah. And that's absolutely key.
3: So it's good to use that word conversation,
0: because the idea of conversation was very much at the heart of the Zebra Project. And the, the philosophy behind that was that, if you want enlightened leadership, whether that leadership's in the C-suite or at uh, different levels of, uh, of management within the organization, then the enlightenment comes from being informed and the opportunity to have a conversation, to inform people, challenge people, uh, is absolutely key to what we're trying to achieve here. The big picture goal of Zebra Project is is to be an advocate for good business, and if we're going to do that, this podcast series needs to be wonderfully successful and reach a very large audience. I'm interested in your views on uh, if you if you were to encourage someone to get involved in Zebra and to uh, listen to the podcast and attend some of the other events that we're involved in, what would you what would be your one piece of advice? What would be your your reason for doing that?
1: I think do it without hesitation. Um, I think you will learn and see things through a different lens that you hadn't. Thought maybe even existed. Um, and I think that's important for your learning, whether that's as a leader or an aspiring leader or however you want to approach business. I think you, there are so many lenses, and the Zebra will give you um, some interesting views.
3: I think um, you should come because you'll learn something new, um, which I did at every event I've ever attended that Zebra have run. Um, you'll be challenged. Um, which i think is good you'll be challenged by other people's thinking and perspectives and i think that it always felt a very safe and supportive place to think and ask what might feel a naive question and often you'd get an inspiring answer from somebody who was part of the zebra community so i think those are all excellent reasons to get involved
2: I oh, was to turn John's answers around slightly. So I would, I would challenge anyone who comes to any events or listens to any of the podcasts or looks at the wall not to learn something because I think it's impossible. Um, so if you look at even those sort of three-minute interviews that we did, everyone I spoke to came away from those thinking, oh, there's something I can apply to my thinking there. So I think that's really important. And ultimately, I think what we'd like to happen is that we want people to listen and think, I can contribute to that conversation. I'd like to come on the podcast and be interviewed by you, Matt.
0: You are all wonderful people. Thank you for the conversation today. Thank you.